Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. Almost everyone has seen the 1982 Steven Spielberg movie Poltergeist. In the film, a family moves into a new home and strange things begin to happen. Objects start to move on their own, chairs are found stacked in an impossible configuration, silverware is found twisted into strange shapes, and objects materialize and drop from the ceiling. The Poltergeist movie may be pure fiction, but Poltergeist activity is very real. What's more, it is without a doubt the most misunderstood of all types of paranormal phenomena. The word poltergeist is a combination of two German words which mean noisy ghost. But there's much more to poltergeist activity than just a lot of noise. The things that people experience in poltergeist cases are not just curious little incidents. They are bizarre, often violent outbursts of activity. Poltergeist activity includes the levitation of objects, loud bangs and rapping sounds, the materialization of small objects that fall from the ceiling or show up in odd places, and the hurling of large objects such as pots and pans. Doors and windows open and close on their own, and fires often break out suddenly around the house in odd places such as under blankets and inside of closets. History is filled with stories of poltergeists causing havoc in a household. Some go back as far as the 1600s. But in today's episode, I'd like to present a modern case, one that was witnessed by scores of people and that was featured in newspaper articles and TV shows. It comes to us from Australia and is known as the Humpty Doo Poltergeist. The Humpty Doo Poltergeist is the most widely publicized case of paranormal activity in Australian history. It all began in August of 1997 when Jill Somerville and her partner Dave Clark moved into a rental home in Humpty Doo, a town located in Australia's Northern Territory. The couple didn't notice anything unusual when they first moved in. But when their friends Andrew and Kirsty moved in with their 11-month-old daughter Jasmine, all hell broke loose. August is monsoon season in Australia, and in 1997, the area had witnessed several of the loudest and heaviest thunderstorms anyone could remember. After one storm, the two couples were sitting on their front veranda at dusk when small stones began landing on the porch. Several struck them, but they didn't cause any harm. Tiring of what they assumed were some kids playing a practical joke, they moved inside. But suddenly, showers of stones began raining down on them inside of the house. The stones, which measured about a half inch in diameter, appeared to have come from their long gravel driveway. But when they took a close look at them, they noticed something strange. 
Even though the property was saturated from the recent rainstorm, all of the rocks that fell inside the house were totally dry. The couples were perplexed and more than a little spooked by this strange occurrence. But things were about to get a lot stranger. Each day, stones continued to materialize and rain down on the household. They would land on tables, beds, and even on the heads of the occupants. It wasn't as if they were being tossed through the windows or doors. They seemed to be falling down through the ceiling. After a few days, household items began flying around. These included knives, batteries, and wrenches. One day, shards of broken glass materialized and fell from the ceiling, but no one knew where they came from since there was no broken glass anywhere in the house. The two couples weren't prone to believing in paranormal activity. They were very tough, hard-working, down-to-earth young men and women, but they had never experienced anything like this before. They were willing to try anything to get rid of the paranormal pest, so they decided to contact the local Catholic Church for help. Jesuit priest Father Stephen de Souza was the first priest to investigate the haunting. As soon as he arrived, he did a walkthrough of the house, and while he was in the kitchen, he noticed a steak knife sitting on top of the microwave. As he turned to walk out of the room, one of the residents yelled out, Father, look out! When the priest turned around, he saw the knife flying straight at him. No one had been anywhere near the knife, so it seems to have flown right off the top of the microwave on its own. There was no time to jump out of the way, but when it was just a few feet from his chest, the knife suddenly stopped and fell at his feet. Although this might have alarmed most people, Father Sousa was unfazed. He had seen things like this before in his native India when he was called upon to deal with similar situations. His take was that a restless spirit may have been drawn to the house, possibly because one of the occupants was a natural medium. Using an age-old Catholic ritual, he attempted to bind the spirit in order to render it harmless. After the ritual, Father Sousa explained that in his experience, Prayer rarely caused a poltergeist to stop its activity. It would go away when it was good and ready. If it was linked to someone in the house who was an unconscious medium, it might follow that person when they moved out. There was nothing to do but wait and see. The priest's prayers gave the household three days of peace and quiet, but then the paranormal craziness started up again. Because the first blessing had worked for a while, the couples contacted another local priest named Father Tom English to see if he could help. As soon as he arrived at the house, a pistol cartridge materialized out of nowhere and landed at his feet. A short time later, a medicine bottle flew at him from an empty room. He walked through the house, said prayers, and blessed the rooms with holy water. Before leaving, Father English left a crucifix and a Bible with the couples with the hopes that having these in the house would help alleviate the situation. But the blessing didn't seem to work. That night, loud banging and scraping sounds came from inside the walls and kept the occupants awake and frightened all night long. 
Then, the crucifix and Bible that the priest had left were thrown around the room, and a container of holy water smashed itself against a wall. A Greek Orthodox priest was the next to try his hand at ridding the house of the poltergeist. He was aware that two priests had already visited the house and that they had had varying degrees of success. He decided to take things one step further. He set up an altar on the kitchen table, blessed each room, then read prayers from a large black book. The passages recited from this book may have been special prayers said during an exorcism. As he was reading from the book, the priest was suddenly assaulted by an invisible force. It repeatedly tried to wrench the books from his hands and to twist his right arm behind his back. Afterward, the priest declared that this was the toughest spirit he had ever encountered. After he finished blessing the house, he left with the hope that the prayers would put an end to the activity. But if anything, things got a lot worse. Strange messages began to appear on the walls and the floors. Some were scrawled on the walls with markers or spelled out in scrabble tiles which were discovered in various parts of the house. The messages in the Scrabble tiles would continue to be part of the paranormal activity for as long as the couples lived in the home. But by far, the strangest messages were those formed from pebbles that were meticulously arranged into letters. One of the first series of words was very upsetting to the couples. When they saw the words fire, skin, car, help, and troy, they knew that they were referring to their good friend named Troy, who had been incinerated in a car accident several months earlier. But the couples didn't think Troy's spirit had anything to do with the haunting. He was a kind, loving person. There would be no reason for him to haunt them, especially in such a disturbing way. One day, a large cross and a trident appeared on the floor in one of the hallways. Both were made up of hundreds of pebbles. A local school teacher, Annette Taylor, happened to be visiting the day that they appeared. She later testified that the formations were so neat and perfect, it would have taken her hours to make them, even if she used a straight edge, a square, and a ruler. Yet they both appeared within minutes on a section of the hallway floor that people had repeatedly walked across that evening. A local newspaper called the Litchfield Times was soon tipped off about the activity. Editor Jack Ellis and two reporters visited the house, where they observed rocks pelting the house firsthand. After the story broke, the residents were soon fielding phone calls day and night from radio stations and newspapers from as far away as Scandinavia. They were being hounded by reporters so much that they finally signed a contract granting exclusive rights to the story for a week to Sydney's Channel 7. Although the $5,000 payment they received was appreciated, they signed with the TV station mainly to protect themselves from other media harassment and in the hope that the video evidence would validate their story. As soon as the TV crew arrived, they quickly became fervent believers after dodging flying objects. But they also became extremely frustrated as the poltergeist seemed to toy with them. Although they never saw any signs of trickery, cameramen always seemed to be facing the wrong way as objects landed right next to them. 
Once, when the house was empty, five cameras were set up in various parts of the house and ran non-stop. They picked up nothing, but when the camera's batteries ran out and a cameraman walked into the house with new batteries, he was pelted by objects. But the camera crew and reporters didn't go away empty-handed. Even though the house had been completely empty, messages appeared on the walls and the floor. These were obviously aimed at the TV crew. They read, No cameras, no TV, and pig camera. Now, one intriguing aspect to the haunting was the fact that the TV crew had secretly hired a thermal camera operator, Brendan Gowdy, to join them in the house. A thermal camera shows heat on objects. If someone had thrown an object, their finger or handprint would clearly show on it when filmed by a thermal camera. The residents of the house weren't told that a thermal camera was being used. As things began falling around the house, Gowdy's camera picked up something totally unexpected. There was no sign that the objects that fell or were thrown had been handled by human hands. They didn't show the heat from fingers or hands. Instead, the objects were evenly heated across their entire surface. The only way to fake such a thing would be to put the object in a microwave before tossing it. Even then, the thrower would have to wear heavy gloves to avoid adding extra heat to the object, which would show up as finger marks. As successful as the thermal camera experiment was, in the end, the camera crew only managed to record three objects in motion. A baby's bottle inexplicably falling from the top of a microwave, a pistol bullet materializing and falling to the floor, and a plastic lid flying out from behind a cabinet. Unfortunately for the hauntees, and to the dismay of everyone involved in the TV project, the program's producers put a skeptical spin on the story. When they ran the program, they used a questionable video clip with misleading voiceovers in an attempt to prove that they had caught one of the women in the act of throwing an object. After falsely discrediting the couples, the TV show held up paying them the balance of the money they were promised. As a result, the families vowed to never allow any media outlet into the home again. But things took a positive change when Paul Cropper and Tony Healy showed up at the house one day. The two happened to be working on a book about Australian poltergeists when they saw the couple's story on the news. Luckily, they allowed Paul and Tony to document the case. The journalists were invited to move into the house, and they ended up staying for five days. During that time, about 30 objects fell on them or nearby. Most were household items, but some were things that the couples had never seen before. Once, a yellow light bulb fell beside the two journalists onto the concrete patio without breaking. Paul and Tony gathered these items and stashed them away in a drawer on the patio. But one by one, each would eventually vanish from the drawer and appear back inside the house. One day, Paul had an amazing encounter with the poltergeist in the kitchen. He was sitting at a table facing two of the female residents as they washed up at the kitchen sink, which was only a few feet away from him. As the women were talking, he heard what sounded like a handful of gravel from the driveway hitting the corrugated tin roof of the house. This was immediately followed by 13 stones falling from the ceiling onto the kitchen floor. 
the stones fell between where Paul was sitting and where the women were standing. Paul had been watching the two women as they washed the dishes, and neither had thrown anything. What makes the incident even more puzzling is the fact that a ceiling fan was on at the time. The stones seemed to have materialized through the roof and the plaster ceiling and somehow fallen through the rotating blades of the fan without hitting them. Now, one quick note about the ceiling fan. Skeptics suggested that the stones that seemed to fall from the ceiling were simply placed on the fins of the ceiling fan and that they scattered as soon as the fan was turned on. But the fact is, that scenario never happened. Stones did fall from the ceiling in some of the rooms that had ceiling fans, but the fans were always running at the time. There was never a time when one of the residents switched on the fan and stones fell. What's more, similar rains of gravel took place throughout the house during Paul and Tony's investigation. Some occurred when the fans were switched off, and others took place in rooms without ceiling fans. Paul said that the strangest incident that he experienced was when a slow, steady rain of tiny pebbles fell on his head one morning as he sat alone at the kitchen table. They weren't tossed from the outside room. They dropped slowly from the ceiling right above him and onto his head. In addition to the stones, other objects were often seen flying around the house. Several times a day, a small crucifix that had been left at the house by one of the priests would disappear from the mantelpiece and later crash into a wall somewhere. One day, when Paul was on the patio, the crucifix landed right next to him. At the time, the only other people present were nearly 100 feet away and in plain sight. Another day, a pistol cartridge dropped vertically onto Paul's leg as he and Tony sat facing the only other people in the room. It would have been impossible for anyone to toss it into the room without seeing the object flying in the door. It simply materialized from the ceiling and fell onto his leg. Once, Tony was sitting at the table with Kirsty. She was holding a newspaper with both hands, reading a story about the poltergeist aloud to him. Suddenly, a small brass plug fell vertically onto the table between the two of them. There was simply no way she could have done this, and no one was anywhere near the two of them at the time. After Tony and Paul concluded their investigation, they interviewed the six journalists who had previously visited the house. All said that they had witnessed poltergeist activity in the house and that they were staunch believers. Reporter Nikki Voss and her cameraman testified that they witnessed a beer mug fly through a very small hole in a window pane without damaging the window itself. Shortly afterward, they were standing with their backs to a wall when the backs of their necks were pelted by gravel. The only way this could have happened is if the stones had materialized through the wall behind them. Tracy Farrar of ABC Radio had collected small brown shells at the beach the day before arriving at the house. As she sat at a table interviewing Kirsty, she saw an identical shell land on the table in front of her. This made no sense at all, since the shells that she collected were at home. Another time, she watched a TV remote lift off of a table next to her and fly into the air.
The landlord, who read about the story in the press and saw coverage on TV news broadcasts, went to the home to see for himself what was going on. He discovered that a lot of damage had been done to his property, and he immediately went to court to have the tenants evicted. But surprisingly, the judge ruled in favor of the couples. He said that they could not be evicted for damaging the property because they were not responsible for the poltergeist haunting. Despite the legal victory, the two couples couldn't take any more of the bizarre phenomena, and they finally moved out of the Humpty Doo home. The landlord had the house repaired and renovated, and none of the new tenants have reported experiencing any type of paranormal activity. If you're interested in learning more about poltergeists, I highly suggest Paul Cropper and Tony Healy's book, Australian Poltergeist, The Stone-Throwing Spook of Humpty Doo, and other cases. As mentioned earlier, the two had spent five full days at the house, and their first-hand encounters with the poltergeist makes it a fascinating read. Poltergeist activity is a rare but fascinating area of paranormal study. It blurs the line between a regular haunting and demonic activity, and it usually resolves on its own in under a year. Paranormal investigators are anxious to learn more about the force behind the poltergeist activity, but because the cases are so rare, they are difficult to study. Many believe that the force that moves objects and causes things to materialize are not related to ghosts at all. They feel that it's a natural form of energy that's projected from certain people. This can arise from times of great stress, depression, or even substance abuse. As we'll see in upcoming episodes, many poltergeist cases revolve around adolescence. Perhaps the physical and emotional changes that occur in adolescence projects outward and manifests as poltergeist activity. In our next episode, I'll tell you about two historical poltergeist cases, the Glenluce poltergeist from 1654 and the Great Amherst Mystery of 1878. Until then, if you have a poltergeist story that you'd like to share, I'd love to hear from you please contact me at the email address in the program notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings. Thank you.